Welcome to the latest podcast from the Luxury Mittal South Asia Institute at Harvard University. My name is Hasit Shah. In the last episode, we heard a rousing talk by Professor Ashok Gudgil from the Mittal Institute's annual symposium in May 2018. The UC Berkeley scientist talked about what he's learned during a long career of trying to use technology to save lives. Here's a subsequent fascinating conversation between Ashok Gudgil, the Mittal Institute's director, Darun Khanna, and first, the Harvard economist, Asim Khawaja. They talk about how difficult it is to solve large-scale life-or-death problems, even with great resources, and the kinds of things you have to do in order to get things done. My, my first question to you is, think of these two ideas you had. I'm very curious about how you, and this is literally your story now, how you sit there and come up with an idea like this. Why this idea? How does that process start for you? How does the process of uh, ideation, if you will, start for you? So two, two examples, different stories. One is uh, I was working in Lawrence Berkeley Lab uh, back in 1990s, and there was a horrific uh, epidemic of cholera in India uh, in 1993 called the Bengal cholera. And this was a mutant strain of cholera against which the standard cholera vaccine was ineffective because this mutant strain had a different coat on the skin of the, of the bacterium. Uh, and it takes two years for a new vaccine to be developed, scaled up, mass manufactured, delivered to the villages and protect the population with cholera vaccine that includes the new strain. In the month of May, uh, which is the cholera season, uh, 10,000 people died uh, in Bihar alone in one month. And I was walking the corridors of Berkeley saying, I'm working on the problem of indoor radon in Berkeley, which kills 12,000 people in all of US per year. It's a fringe problem <laughs> compared to what's happening in my home country. Uh, so it, it begins to bother you. It's on your brain all the time. So that led to uh, looking up what's the what's way to make water portable against only biological pathogens. So that's all this does, okay? Viruses, bacteria, and maybe eggs of helminths and amoeba, but it's all biological. Uh, and that led to running some experiments, doing some first cost calculations, and... It is amazing to, to demonstrate that you can disinfect one ton of water biologically with UV light with all costs included, including amortized capital. I mean, we got to learn economics. Otherwise, you can't do this, okay? <laughs> including amortized capital, electricity cost, and consumables. You can disinfect one ton of water, 1,000 liters, for five U.S. cents. So if a person drinks 10 liters per day, which is generous, or uses 10 liters per day, and the 365 days, so that's 3.6 tons of water, which means we should be able to deliver water for less than a quarter, less than 25 cents per person per year. Now, that is surely worth saving somebody's life with. So now the challenge is, how do you make it really work in the real world? But it starts with, I would say, a technological analysis and finding but coupled right away with the cost calculation to see, is this likely to be profitable and affordable? 
Otherwise, it's no go. Hit a stone wall. Try again. And what about the arsenic story? How does that happen? Uh, after, after this whole thing got launched, the UV water was got launched, uh, I was looking for the next water problem. <laughs> <laughs> you got hooked. <laughs> and obviously, the next water problem was arsenic. If you, if you look up what is the next biggest catastrophic disaster, particularly in South Asia, is, is arsenic, arsenic, arsenic. I mean, there, there's a whole website here at Harvard. A physics professor has put up a website here about arsenic problem. Wilson, Professor Wilson. He may be retired now, but a website may be there. Uh, so I started worrying about how to, what can be done. And now, now I was getting into very deep water because I'm, I'm a physicist by training and not a chemist at all. Forget about inorganic chemistry. Forget about electrochemistry. But one of the things I need to say up here is whenever it looks like I did this, it was always by teamwork. It was always by asking other people's help and and recognizing what I don't know and, and bringing them on to be a team so that we all work together for the same purpose. And without that, none of this could have ever happened. So uh, MIT had come up with what I now think is not a, such a smart design of an arsenic filter. They had a bunch of nails and you poured arsenic lace water on top and they said the rust in the nails will uh, remove the arsenic. Yeah, and the chemistry works. The trouble is the rust of the nails is not generated fast enough to remove 500, 600, 800 ppb of arsenic. So I had my student actually build that filter and showed it doesn't work. And then I said, you know, it's as simple as that. I can make that rust, create that rust as fast as I want by putting up a small DC electric current. So back to my garage, I had a little <laughs> experiment in a plastic plate with nails and a battery cell. And my God, jets of rust come out of nail if you stick that <laughs> in your tap water with a, with a single default cell. And I said, this is phenomenal. Some calculation makes Probably me Probably the, the, the most romantic fe uh, feeling anyone's ever expressed about rust, but okay. <laughs> rust is magic, I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, I've... It turns out the cost of one person's uh, arsenic removal uh, is about the amount of electricity you can buy in a single D cell, dry cell. So I said, this is again, economics has to work with this and then a whole lot of detailed electrochemistry to figure out what is going on and how to make it work. But it's got to be really together, economics and, and engineering science. Obviously this is music to my ears as an economist, but uh, so let me ask a follow-up question. I mean, the way you describe it, uh, it's, it's, it's fascinating, but it also, Forgive me saying this, but it, the, the initial impulse sounds simple enough, right? The initial instinct sounds like observing the world, coming up with an idea, and then having, obviously, the drive yeah, resources. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why does this happen? Why does it take you, uh, a diasporic Indian sitting in Berkeley, to be obsessing about these things as opposed to someone in India, someone in Bangladesh, someone from our the world? What is the, what is the constraint you feel? You've seen this. You seem to be a very modest guy, so I, I assume the answer isn't going to be, I have an IQ much higher than anyone else. So what's stopping us in our countries from coming up with solutions to our problems? So I think you have asked two different questions. Uh, one is, why does it take me to do this? And when I develop UV Waterworks, for a, for a while I felt any physics high school teacher anywhere in the world should have, could have, but did not do this. 
And when I got a prize uh, through the, the deputy director of the lab, uh, it, he, there was a kind of little ceremony where he gave it to me. He said, what is this? And I explained it. He said, that is so simple. I could have done it. And I said to myself, but you didn't. Of course, I keep it. <laughs> I can't say that, right? So that is the first answer to the question, uh, or the first part of the question is, you have to be on top of the problem. And you have to take the problem up and hang on to it like a bulldog will, will, will have a bite that he won't give up. That kind of persistence, not about a particular idea, but about solving a particular problem. So if one approach fails, try, 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 try. So there is a whole bunch of stuff that you don't see, that you tried and didn't work, uh, and so on. But, but I've I seen it in lots of people who are extremely smart, that they don't have the patience and the perseverance and the energy to keep on banging their head on that wall and in different places to see which brick will shake loose. So before you answer my second question, which apparently you think, I, I don't know what the second one was, but you clearly do. Um, how, how does that persistence get created? Is that something which comes innate from you or is it something in your environment or is there something in your, your, your collegial set or the resources you have? Uh... Uh, uh, it's got something to do with the resources too because I know that uh, if I had to put in uh, three hours of commute uh, and then uh, seven, eight hours of grinding work, both ends back and forth, I'd be completely drained. I wouldn't, I would just want to, you know, rest. You just get wiped out. It's possible. So, so it's possible that the resources have something to do with it. I think uh, there's also environment of, of saying, uh, feeling encouraged that technological solutions to desperate problems of people in the developing world are an unexplored territory. Most, I would say 90, 95% of engineers work just for the top 5% of the people in the world, wealth-wise. And that's how we are trained as engineers. And we may work on the new app, or we may work on some new nice way to to do antiviral code or or whatever else, right? But the problems which are often existential, like internal cancers in Bangladesh, are not on the horizon of engineers being trained in India or in the US. Because our mindset often is, in engineering science, our mindset often is you gain mastery of a field, then you go work for a corporation, and you do what the corporation tells you to do, you go to the basement and do that very job. And the CEO decides what is worth doing. So a vast amount of knowledge and talent at our fingertips, uh, and also goodwill, is disconnected from the real problem. Uh, and I think what I've, what I've done is scratch the surface. But are you, um, just to push back a bit on that, are you presenting engineers as these sweet but humble, you know, um, sort of basement dwellers who are who are dictated by the big corporate giant, or are they are they motivated by money? Uh, you know, at the end of the day, the reason we work on five percent problems is that's where the money is. And so, how much, or is, or should I suspect that once I free, once I open that basement door, this horde of engineers will come out, all motivated in solving problems for the poor? Very, very good question, and I, I have to, uh, I, I can answer it based on my experience at Berkeley among students. Uh, it's true that 
a large fraction of engineers, a very large fraction of engineers, or any, anybody else, would be motivated by economic gain, yeah. a very large fraction. But I need only 1% of engineers to be thinking about the big questions. You just need the mutants to show up. Yeah, that's totally adequate. Right? So, so that is one, one way to answer the question. The second way to answer the question is, look, when I address those problems, I didn't do it for money because I could do it in my spare time and then I could raise money from here and there uh, and put in some of my own evenings, weekends, stealing time from family to do it. If you want to do it, you'll figure out a way to do it, particularly if we are in a relatively, uh, not in an extremely dis distressed uh, environment. So uh, it also takes that kind of commitment and, and passion to say it can be done or try. Um, but you do have to have that 1% people who... So, so talk try. about that persistence. <laughs> uh, we talked about two cases. One seems tremendously successful. The other, I hope, will be. Let's talk about failures. Um, these are also darkest moments where for you or it didn't work, yeah. uh, whether it's a failure in a solution. Share with us your bleakest moments and how you got out of them. Or did you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so one of the bleakest moments, uh, and, I, and I, that's, the, that's what I call, a, I think it's, it's, it, it scarred me uh, forever. But it, it doesn't uh, look like it. Does it seem no, okay. <laughs> Point is, there is a very nice saying, okay, which says, experience leads to good judgment. But it's a bad judgment that leads to experience. <laughs> so, so, so I'm telling you the first part, bad judgment. <laughs> and then you know what mistakes to avoid, so it's good. Uh, so this is about a, an idea I had when I came back from India to the US and I was thinking about the following problem. And you will, you will get it right away because you'll see how economics is at the core of it. Uh, back in 1980s and 1990s, uh, about maybe 500 million or maybe 400 million Indians did not have electricity. I think now the number is 300 million. By, by that definition, uh, by Indians, uh, India's government definition, you have electricity if your village has a copper wire and on that copper wire, there are there is voltage for eight hours a day. If if uh, so, then there are other people without electricity who don't meet these conditions. Uh, so there was electricity shortages everywhere, and uh, there were lifeline rates for poor people, which constituted majority of residential customers. And these poor people at lifeline rates were sold electricity below the cost of production. So the utilities would lose money for selling them electricity, but they're required to do so because of political need for improving lives. At the same time, because these people are so poor, the one thing they would have would be an incandescent bulb hanging from a wire in the room, maybe two bulbs if they are better off. But that's it. Now it turns out that India also had a peak power problem, your, your, your installed capacity has to meet the peak demand. Electricity cannot be stored on large scale. So your peak demand matches the residential lighting load between 6 p.m. and 10 p.m. All of it driven by these very incandescent bulbs hanging on wires, just bare wires in rooms for poor people. And then along came an amazing invention, which wasn't making its way to India, 
that of at that time compact fluorescent lamps and now led lights compact fluorescent lamps produce 40 lumens per watt of electricity leds can produce 70 lumens per watt of electricity incandescent lamps produce 10 lumens per watt of electricity but of course compact fluorescent lamps were very expensive 10 dollars 15 dollars per pop at that time i ran the economics to show that if the utilities, instead of losing money on selling electricity to these people, if the utilities subsidized two compact fluorescent lamps per family, per customer, and had the customers pay through the same electricity bill, a, a, a distributed charge, then the customer's net electricity bill will still drop. The utility will sell less electricity and therefore keep some of the money. And you will actually have an energy revolution in the country because we were throttled by the lighting demand. So I tried to implement this project in Mumbai. It was called Bell for Bombay, that time Bombay, uh, Efficient Lighting Experiment, or some cooked up name like that, B-E-L-L-E. And um, we had to import CFLs. India had no CFLs. So I went to USAID and asked them that can, can, we, can they import CFLs and we buy it in rupees? We have the rupee amount. Because it's a win-win all around. And a particular nonprofit which wanted a monopoly on energy policy in India was on the advisory board for allowing whether USAID money can be used to buy CFLs to bring into the country. And they killed it. And I, I knew they were going to kill it. I was in Delhi at that time. And I offered to go in front of the committee to say, let me explain to you why this is good for India. They wouldn't let me come. I offered to the head of that NGO that I'll, I will support, I'll actually guide doing the same experiment in, in Delhi. But I said, we don't want anybody else to be there. We want to do it alone. But I said, you do it alone, it's okay too. But they never did it either. Because it was not about solving the problem. So what I learned is, the stated goals of an institution, in this case, energy policy for India, is a stated goal. The actual motivation is crush the competition first. And I happen to be the little, little competition. They wouldn't allow me to be successful. That'd be horrible. Somebody else did it without them. That was a horrible, soul-crushing experience. So what did I do? I went and got funding from World Bank to get to CFE in Mexico. CFE is the, is the um, central electric utility in Mexico. And did the same experiment in the cities of Guadalajara and Monterrey, which was hugely successful. The $10 million loan from the World Bank piggybacked onto a power loan. And the Norwegians gave a $2 million grant to CFE. It was, of course, it's like simple physics, right? It's got to work if you put in a loan power lamp, it saves you energy. And then it was replicated in Brazil, now it's replicated in the two dozen countries, and it saves those countries $5 billion per year, according to UNEP, as of 2011, and the number continues to grow. So, again, it's persistence, but also uh, I got scars. But you gave up in India, you didn't go back after that experience to say, look, 
All this money saved. No, I didn't go back in India because that NGO is very powerful. Uh, but now the Modi government in India has started doing this on their own and has gone to scale beyond anybody's dreams. So it's anyway. It's phenomenal. Yeah, it's anyway there. So politics, I guess, eats technology even more oh, than yeah. culture does. <laughs> I, I have a research group at the Kennedy School called Evidence for Policy Design. Um, and what we do is actually, it's interesting, you know, as I was hearing Ashok, a lot of, obviously, you know, this comes natural to you. Uh, I've made lots of mistakes in the work we've done uh, in sim a very similar sort of challenge, which is when you think of testing something, in my case, it's not. I'm not creating a product. I'm creating a policy reform and intervention. How do you get children to get better educational outcomes? Or how do you get tax, uh, tax collectors to be able to raise more taxes? Or, or, or how do you get uh, banks to lend more money to poor people, right? So those are kind of the problems that I've been working on. And I think one of the things which resonated very strongly with me in my experience has been, and, you know, for us, what's happening in development economics is very much, I think, in the spirit of what Ashok is saying, is a lot of us are now heavily in the field. Uh, this idea of that you pilot something in some abstract reality and then go in and, and scale it or apply it is just changing. Like the, 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 what you said is really, really uh, powerful, which is design and implementation are not separate things. It's not that the act of implementation is something you get others to do for you. Uh, the design aspect and the implementation aspect are heavily intertwined. Uh, and so that's one. The second thing I think, which again resonates very strongly with our experiences, and again, this has taken a while for us uh, to do as economists, but also even more so as academics, which is listen to the problem. You know, it's very easy for us. We tend to be very solution-driven. Um, and, and I think being solution-driven is actually a terrible thing. I'll tell you why. Because when you're solution-driven, you have your favorite solution. And you just shove it everywhere, right? Everything you look at looks like the problem for your solution. And you keep doing this. And you put money behind it. And when it doesn't work, you put more money behind it. Because obviously, God darn it, it has to work. It must be that the problem is wrong. And those people don't know their own problem. right? And so, so it took me a while to realize that you should be obsessed about the problem. And it's not your problem. It's a problem you see in the world. And there's no way you can see that problem by sitting here. You just can't. You only see your problem then. right? So, so, so this process of understanding, that's why I was very... Fascinated, Ashok, by how you see someone else's problem and you adopt it. I think that's the hardest challenge we've had in our research group, is really being able to go to these places, uh, listen to someone's problem, understand someone's problem, and then also realize that in that act of solving the problem, it's not that you go back to your office and you're the expert and you're going to solve the problem. You realize there's no way in hell you can solve the problem without involving them in solving the problem. Right? You can bring some skill set to it. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think Ashok is right. A lot of what we can bring is outside. And that's why I love collaborations. Uh, and I'm sure, as you mentioned, you, a lot of your work is collaborations. Is A lot of times I feel when I go to a country like Pakistan where I do a lot of my work, it's not that I'm bringing necessarily special knowledge. or I mean, I'm bringing some knowledge, uh, some resources. I'm often bringing exactly that space to be persistent. Right? Because I have that luxury. I can go back and kind of have my resources, have my ecosystem. And sometimes that space to be persistent is giving cover Giving protection sounds like a strong word to use, but giving maybe a weaker word is plausible deniability. You know, you can, you can have those local colleagues say, I'm actually working with Harvard professor. I'm working with Berkeley professor. This must be a real thing, right? Uh, as opposed to it's, you know, I have a colleague, Lan Pritchett, who says, you know, we do this thing called isomorphic mimicry. We do things which look like fancy things um, in developing countries, 
And they're fancy because they look exactly like what someone in a rich country would be doing, even though it's completely irrelevant for us. And the reason we don't do the thing which really matters for us is because it doesn't look fancy. And so to justify to our bosses, to our peers, to our funders why we're doing this, we have to say, oh, we're doing it because Harvard is doing it. And so part of what I feel I do is literally just give that cover to someone to be able to do this work. And so that's, uh, but you know, what resonates, I mean, there's a lot of what you say which resonates with me, and that just gives me more confidence that what I'm doing probably isn't half-assed. There is a successful story to it, and so I I look forward to that. But thanks, everyone, for that. So I I think there's a lot of uh, amazing sort of uh, uh, synergies in these these approaches. Let me open up now um, to the audience. My name is uh, Kinga Tsering. I'm from uh, Bhutan. I'm also at the Kennedy School with the mid-career program last year. And thank you for your very excellent talk, Professor Gertgill. I think especially fascinating on how your talk on the engineering concept is inspiring, especially, I think, all part of the world, uh, where, I mean, every kid, whether their aspiration is to become an engineer or a doctor, uh, primarily because of the motivation, but at the same time, the rest are, they don't want to do it because it's so difficult. I I, I wish I knew how to do this, uh, but I think the real core motivation comes from the heart, and it comes from empathy. When, when I think that I'm just a lucky kid who happened to be able to go to an IIT and to Berkeley, and if I was born in a worse circumstance, it is a matter of I could be in that person's skin, and I could be hauling, uh, hauling you know, sacks of rubbish like a coolie. It's just a matter of happenstance. Inside that person's skin is a human being exactly like me. And they have not done anything worse to deserve it. That recognition, I think, in my case at least, makes me think about people who are just plain damn not so lucky and is unfair. So if I can make the world a little less unfair, it makes me feel good. But I don't know how to teach that. I mean, there is, uh, in my experience, it's, it's very similar to Ashok's as well. It's, you're bugged by things you see which don't seem to work, and it just is annoying, right? Uh, you can call it empathy in a nicer way, or you can just call it this innate curiosity, because you have to solve the damn thing. It should work. Why isn't it working? And the question for us is, I actually think we humans naturally have that. Sure. That's innate in us. I actually think we, our education does a phenomenal job of crushing it, yeah. of destroying it, because we believe that that kind of... I, I remember as a kid being told, why are you asking that question? That's out of the syllabus. <laughs> what does that even mean, right? Um, so, so I actually do think... I mean, it'll take us a while, but I do think the more and more as we do these hands-on... I also think there's a sense in which you should tell people, look, it's okay to do this. You don't achieve success by emulating some dude. and I can't tell you how many economists sitting in Pakistan write papers, which is replicated. I mean, I, Intazar, can, uh, Intazar can say this as well. Write papers. I'm not saying he does it, but he's aware of this. <laughs> um, where you literally replicate some paper someone has written with Pakistani data. That is not good research, right? So I think if we just say that's like crap research, that'll get published nowhere except some crap journal, which is only locally published. If you want to publish, even if you want to achieve the heights of whatever material success, you can only do it by pushing your creative idea. So I feel like there's a way to make it incentive compatible, to make it currency of change. You know, parents are highly ambitious in every country. If you can convince parents your kids will succeed through this way, I actually think it'll happen, right? So 
So I'm, I'm fairly optimistic that this, I see this beginning to happen. I see this, um, you know, we're stopping to suppress kids as much as we used to. My name is Imtiaz and I'm a visiting fellow at the South Asia Institute. And I agree with you that we should look at the problem and let that dictate the direction we take. But if you look at most developing countries, and especially those in South Asia, the biggest problems appear to be structural. It's bad politics. It's bad institutions. Yet, you see academics and economists shy away from those problems. They typically tend to pick easier battles. And um, Ashok just shared his opinion as well. It just seems like too much for us. So we move away from that. So what do we do then? Is it... Oh, oh boy. You ran away from the waterboard, <laughs> from the energy guys. Just say what you want. So you copped out. It's true. I mean, I, I, I cannot claim that I'll take on every problem or I can take on. I don't have that horsepower. Uh, I, I will say, the way I, I explain it to my students at least is, uh, four-fifths, or now, now more than that maybe, but at least four-fifths, 80% of the world is not first world. And their problems are often not on the horizon uh, of, of most of the students in my class, even graduate students when we think. Uh, and while there are lots of trickle-down solutions that do happen like cell phones going there, uh, fundamental problems like safe drinking water good education, uh, decent healthcare systems are not trickled down. It's not like a product you can, it's a system, more, much more complicated. So I, I, I suggest to them that there are problems and there are problems and only some subset of problems have a technology handle. In other words, you can get a grip on the problem through a technology, such as arsenic, for example, or, or biological contamination. But other problems, you really need a much larger systemic change and a system-scale thinker. So to everybody, their own is what I say. I mean, I am good at some things, and that's what I will try to do. Uh, but I know what I can't do. Sometimes you need a labor organizer, not a technical trick, right? I mean, also to add to that, and maybe Tarun can add to that as well, my view is some of these problems exactly in the way Ashok, these are collective problems, they're not individual problems as much as, I mean, the problems Ashok is talking about are collective, but still there's, there's manageable teams, no. they can do them. What you're talking about, I think, when you change a political demeanor of a place or a political action of a place, you're not talking about not tens of twenties or thirties of people, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of people kind of trying to, and I think there is a process to that. Uh, and I do think people do that. Um, I think you're right. A lot of academics shy away from that. Um, I think that's changing, by the way. I think there are people increasingly who are looking at political economy, both empirically and policy-wise. I think so far the stage at the literature, for at least my understanding, is a lot of it is much more in the positive frame of things, which is what, how do we understand this process? They haven't moved to the normative stage of things to say, how do we change this process? A lot of, in other, in things like education or health, we have moved from the positive to the normative. We're now coming in and changing. And I think political economy, we're very much still in the positive. So I'm, you know, I'm seeing things happening. I'm seeing more and more interesting research where people are doing campaigning, rights to action in India programs, 
you know, Rohini Pandey, a colleague of mine, has these programs on information for voters and how do you change how people elect politicians. Saad Gulzar in Pakistan is doing fascinating work uh, along the same lines on how do you uh, enter into politics. I can't tell you how many students of mine who are kind of, you know, Kennedy School, you know, economists, uh, political scientists or others, um, have, have come to me and said, I want to enter politics. Not just I want to study politics, I want to enter politics. And I think that's a really fascinating. I've seen that literally in the 10 to 15 years I've taught. I don't know if HBS is seeing that. People for, coming in and saying, I want to enter politics. And I think take enough of those guys. Uh, I mean, Mariam has, has flirted with this idea in, in her lifetime. I don't know when she's going to come to it. Um, next week. Next week? Uh, <laughs> I thought it's July is the date, no? Um, and so... I think once that starts happening, then I think these movements can, can begin to happen. Tarun, you wanted to add to that? Yes, I wanted to uh, put another dimension of the problem with the view to creating a structure for how to think about this. So it's a candidate, uh, candidate structure. that, And I, needed, I need to take two minutes to give you an example. So I started working on the problem of diabetes many years ago through some research projects with some doctors and through starting my own company to address a diabetes measurement with some novel science. Um, so, uh, but what I want to talk about is how we went about thinking about this thing that both of you have talked about, which is immersion in the problem. Mm. So because I had drunk the same Kool-Aid that both of you have drunk, right? I said, fine, what's the way to do it? Let's get everybody in the diabetes ecosystem in Bangalore together. So we got endocrinologists, nurses, diabetics, drug, drug makers, I mean, uh, insulin makers, uh, device uh, injectors, insurers, not that there's much of insurance in India, but we've got insurers. And I, I ran it like a TV show. So I curated a conversation, much like you had this conversation, and videotaped the whole thing. We then made five-minute clips to focus on particular things that seemed to us to suggest uh, interventions that could be made into self-standing organizations in our imagination. And we blasted the media waves in Bangalore with these five five-minute clips and ran a competition. Uh, we got good good response to it. Um, not great, but good. Uh, and then ran the competition and said, okay, you know, some of my friends will fund these three ventures. Okay. One non-profit, one for-profit, one dubious. We'll fund it. See what happens. None of the three took it after entering the competition. Why? Uh, one person got married and the spouse objected. The second person got admitted to a PhD program at Princeton from Bangalore, so took off. Third person was a middle manager in a biotech, in a bio company in Bangalore and said, on balance, that's safer. Right? So I'm just saying this to illustrate two things. But I'm sure that that approach is doable, which is it speaks to the systemic nature of the problem because unless you have all these people working together, and what I'm trying to prototype is an approach to systems problems. I don't know if this is a good approach, but it's an approach that seems like it's replicable and testable and refutable, so therefore it must be a good idea. But the challenge that I've run into is that I spent some money doing this, and now to do it again, you know, each of these experiments costs 100 rand, 200 rand, 300 rand, at least to run it even once. So that's a challenge. So I just put that out there as a structure and uh, as the barrier that I've run into, which is it didn't work the first time for you know, for cultural reasons, uh, you might say, as culture eats, eats the experiment for breakfast. Um, anyway. I mean, there's a sense in which I, I am astounded by how little space we have for failure. 
uh, it's not experimentation, it's successful failures. Uh, we, we don't celebrate failure. Uh, and I don't know how to, I don't know how to create the space where, you know, I've thought of this in entrepreneurship as well, uh, you know, taking a safe job versus a chance to fail. And 99% of the time you'll take the safe job. Uh, I think that's beginning to change. I mean, you guys can speak to the Pakistan ecosystem. I'm seeing at least, I don't know the Indian ecosystem, whether that's beginning to change. There is a sense. In, I don't think so. No? Uh, I, I want to believe that it's changing. And, you know, I, I, we've spoken, I've built my own incubator in Bangalore, sunk a lot of capital into it, personal capital, reputational capital. I'm not going to know whether it works in the sense of a return on investment for at least 10 years. So it's completely a labor of love, right? Now, why should I expect society at large, if we adopt Ashok's rules, if they're 1% mutants like us doing these things, why should I expect uh, that society will do this? Ultimately, it's a collective action problem at the level of society. Society has to create. So maybe the answer is in the political economists who then motivate changes in attitudes. Right? 